You're listening to Naked League Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 158 is Dar Williams. She started recording in the early 90s, was praised by Joan Baez, did Lilith Fair, has released 11 albums, or 13 if you count her little indie releases that she started with. You're right now hearing As Cool As I Am from her 1996 album Mortal City, perhaps her biggest single. We're going to be talking about the song Berkeley from her brand new album I'll Meet You Here, and looking back to a song called Empty Plane from her last album, 2015's Emerald, and going back to the 90s to Are You Out There from 1990. The End of Summer. We'll conclude by listening to Today and Every Day, another track from the new album. For more information, please see darwilliams.com. For more about this podcast, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And to support the effort and hear ad-free versions of all these episodes, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. That will also give you my notes to these interviews. I will play it a little of As Cool As I Am from Mortal City 1996, but we're going to get very quickly to the new thing. Can you say a little about how the journey has gotten you to this moment, to the new album? I know it's been kind of a break since the last album. Where are you at with this album and this song? I lead a songwriting retreat, so I was never out of touch with songwriting. But in 2017, I put out a book that was called What I Found in a Thousand Towns. It was like a song. It was like it just rose up in me that something that I really wanted to do. And it had to do with urban planning, basically. <laughs> but kind of my take on it, because I've been to so many towns that have gone from like, you know, we're going to stick you in a house concert on the edge of the city. And then we're going to get you into like the church basement and we're going to hand print the tickets and we're going to bring our own chairs. And then suddenly we're upstairs and suddenly we have an art center. And like I was just watching this whole world of towns kind of improving themselves and becoming resilient and thriving and finding ways to be in the 21st century. Like I kept on finding ways that people were doing that. And so I wrote a book about it, which turned out to not be conducive to also writing songs at the same time. So I put out the book in 2017. I was going to put out the album in 2020. And then, you know, stuff happened. Okay. So we're about to hear uh, the song Berkeley. So was this mostly recorded sending files back and forth? Was this a quarantine creature or was this mostly before or... The album was recorded in 2019 and mixed in 2020 at the beginning. I mean, really, we were very lucky. Most of, so all of this was very post-production mastering when the pandemic hit, but it was mostly in the can by then. Let us begin. Bay waters, Berkeley's daughters called me to be an Aquarian child. I was the crazed model for somebody's novel, bought from the bookstore where hell was on trial. And there we unraveled and dutifully traveled out of our minds. There we were out of our minds. Something better The old world was fading The canvas was waiting Pale eucalyptus And lavender light We courted the mayhem Talked with our brethren They yelled at the sun And they wandered at night And everything mattered All blissed out and tattered And out of their Still pagan, still angry at Reagan Brought us to bed by the luminous dawn Our souls and their secrets promised to keep us out of all time There in a place at a time There and whatever we'd find 
So we've got a very sort of wistful 6-8 thing going on here. You start with this, let us begin, almost like we're starting a prayer, almost like we're in church here. It's very Leonard Cohen. <laughs> I just couldn't let it go. Like I just, I just really wanted that kind of like, let us part the curtains, let us go into another world. And it has a bit of the dramatic, but also the melodramatic of, you know, a whole era that took itself very seriously, which seemed good for Berkeley. Although it's wistful, this time is gone, but then by the end, well, no, it's not really gone. Berkeley is still, or at least this is a time capsule area. Yeah, in in a lot of ways. I mean, it's difficult because all of these places do become more gentrified. I mean, I think Sur La Table, which is a very big deal kitchen store, you know, started there. And Pete's Coffee started in Berkeley. And, and we all know what these have become. And there's a parallel in the real estate prices and stuff. But you still find people wandering around talking to themselves and other people looking at them going, well, you know, that's your trip, man. That's fine. You know, talk to yourself. That's cool. And people who live in People's Park and aren't kicked out because there's even maybe a vision that not having a home is kind of the way you live, you know, (laughs) like there's a real entertaining of alternative wavelengths and what we call neurodiversity now, which I think is great. Well, and you have the going out of our minds there, which makes it sound like maybe not such a good thing. Or I don't know, you, I know you've sort of done a lot of addressing mental health, but here we're getting the idea of it's no, it's to find something better. It's, you know, breaking the doors of perception, that kind of stuff. How does that sort of connect with the way you deal with mental health and the rest of your songs? Let's say that. That's really the crux of it, right? Sometimes you go out of your mind to break the mold and then come back. You know, there's this thing in, in Shakespeare that they call the green world and the closed world and, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. They go into the forest and they're under this spell and everybody's under a spell. And then they come back into the closed world, you know, and they're ready to just start again with all of the same old, same old, except they're a little bit changed. And the green world influences and creates little fissures within the closed world. And that's healthy. You know, that's how we grow as civilizations. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that was happening in Berkeley I went to like a communist uh, film festival thing and man, they were so earnest and they were so like waiting for the revolution to come any day now. And, and it was really rigid. And, but, you know, at the same time, I was glad that there was this kind of deep, constant look at exploitation and the history of exploitation and that that so permeated the world. And I think that some of that, you know, people say they're crazy, but that keeps on coming into what we call the mainstream. And that's just one example <laughs> of the crazy that I found when I lived in Berkeley, which was just for a summer. Since you mentioned Leonard Cohen, I can totally see a line like, fed into trains bound for Moloch's machine, like that coming out of <laughs> his mouth. That is, you know, a little too hoity-toity for, for uh, uh, most of your lyrics. It's super hoity-toity. We were, <laughs> we were in the studio and like, There were a lot of moving parts, and this song has some little twists and turns musically, and the uh, producer's like, hey, Dar, I have a question. (laughs) Who's Moloch? (laughs) I was like, I did not expect to talk about the lyrics. You know, Moloch is great because there's three Molochs that are being referred to there. One is the Moloch of Howell that Allen Ginsberg wrote about. And it says, you know, Moloch, who's, I think, whose mind is machinery and whose blood is money, you know, just really stark 
Moloch basically eats people. And then there's Moloch, which is an Old Testament god, a baddie, <laughs> who requires human sacrifice. You know, this is like how, why we say we don't do polytheism anymore, because, you know, you have Moloch who requires human sacrifice to thrive, you know. And then, then I was teaching about Howell in a class, and one of my students said, actually, Moloch is the machine in the factory in Metropolis. And somebody kind of falls into it. Like you can see the machine kind of has this big maw and one of the workers falls into it. And Metropolis is a huge commentary on, you know, exploitation and sort of treating workers like cogs in a machine. And so, you know, dehumanized. So this idea (laughs) that the doors open and all of these elegant people with their silver machines, you know, go into these little silver cars that take them into San Francisco to work, you know, that will be somebody's perspective as they look at sort of the new Berkeley, like all happy ending. We all have our Apple computers and we go and and work in one of the most wealthy cities in the world with people that you have to step over in order to get to work. So I really wanted that image. And I liked the idea of having Moloch, who has so many layers historically, Ginsburg, Metropolis, Old Testament. So that sounds like you had that line lying around before this song came together. Is that? (laughs) You know, I did not. (laughs) I, you know, I did have Berkeley still pagan, still angry at Reagan. Cause every time I've gone back there, it's like, they don't mess around. They don't say, well, I miss Reagan or at least Reagan, blah, blah, blah. Like Reagan was better than these guys because he blah, blah. Like there's no forgiveness done with Reagan because he was the governor before he was president. And one of the things he did was to do a lot of things where a lot of mentally ill people were released from state institutions, and a lot of them really suffered. And a lot of them then lived on the streets. Like there was a guy I used to talk to when I lived there who had all these law books in his shopping cart. Like he had a giant library of law books that somebody had tried to throw out. And so he'd just read the law books all the time and he would explain the law to me. And I was like, okay, (laughs) great. Thanks. Thanks for letting me know. And he told me all about Reagan. And stuff. So, you know, there were some alternative thoughts that got into the world because they were deinstitutionalized, but also Reagan was seen as causing a lot of pain in the state as well as the country. Now, the Moloch reference did not bother me, but I think I missed the bought from the bookstore where, where Hal was on trial. What is that a reference to? I feel like that's I... also, it's all kind of a piece because Howell was read in the late 50s. Oh, Howl, not Hal. Okay, see, this is the the only one that I didn't have the lyrics written down for. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense. It's capital H, right? So, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really poetic. Where Howl was on trial, it's the poem Howl, and I think anybody in the Bay Area would know probably that reference. So, Ferlinghetti was the bookstore owner of Northern Lights, and I hope I got the name right. Oh man, City Lights and on the North Shore, but he had to defend. You know, they had to defend the howl from the obscenity laws and they won. And it was right at the end of the 50s. And I've always thought that the 50s basically caused the 60s. You know, the 50s just got so tight that they had to break open and the 60s happened. So this is right at the end and they won for art over obscenity. Let's turn back to the mechanics a little bit here. What sold me on this song, why I picked this one is because you go into those instrumental breaks with the heavy strings. Is that sort of the art? We've gone out of our minds. We're entering the fantasy world, something like that. I don't know what those instrumental breaks mean, but I think you're close. And I think, <laughs> I think it was kind of classical. So it's almost giving this weird little ornate Baroque stage for all of these things to sort of dance around all of these different characters from the past and from this Passover Seder that we're at where people are screaming politics and, you know, this lover and, and these people who, you know, walk around talking to themselves at night. So yes, I think that this was this kind of ornate, strangely ornate stage sonically for them to play themselves out on. And it's weirdly kind of taking the place of the chorus that the out of our minds, you know, when that part came up, I wrote, that's the pre-chorus. Like, okay, it's grand. There's some choir, the backing vocals are kicking in, but it sounds like it's swelling up in order to then pound you with like the happy chorus or whatever. And instead it's, well, we go back to the refrain, what's been happening with the verses with that instrumental over it twice. So it's not just. You're so right. Out of our minds does sounds like a pre-chorus on the way to. And then it's not. But then that that instrumental bridge does sound like some sort of commenting chorus, you know, some summarizing chorus. Good point. 
What is your general procedure and sort of what happened with this one in terms of the lyrics? Is it always pretty much in one go or are you workshopping these really carefully? This one was really tough. I think that I had that first melody. And again, you know, what happens is, I mean, as I've been writing about songwriting for this songwriting retreat, I've been working on this book and I'm like, okay, you have this little thing that comes into your mind. So there I was, you know, walking around like a gas station (laughs) on tour. (laughs) taking a break while I was with a band and we were all kind of walking around and that melody came into my head. It went, and it just sounded so plush, you know, very, (laughs) and it sounded sad and kind of, but like Leonard Cohen-y sad, like that kind of minor key, you know, we're going to get into some heavy imagery and really enter those metaphors and, and take these alternate realities seriously. That's very Leonard Cohen. So I just followed that. And it just was reminding me of Berkeley. I don't know if Berkeley felt that way to me. And so I started to put that theme and that line together. And then there's this thing that I talk about where I'm just like, okay, here we are. We have these kind of little snippets of images. So what happened? And what happened was that I went to Berkeley for a summer and it was like 1987, but it might as well have been 1968. They were like, now, man, it's changed so much. But it was still the tie-dye and the crazy and the, and the street vendors, you know, shouting at us about the conspiracies and my downstairs neighbor being a really troubled dealer and <laughs> all that. So I stole my underwear when I went to the laundromat and, and they're like, oh, Bob, yeah, he steals everybody's underwear, you know, that kind of scene. I remember that. I remember then coming back on tour and continuously encountering that Berkeley all the way up to 20, you know, 17, 16, where I went to the original Pete's and there was so much respect given to like somebody walked in and started shouting and this guy's like, hey, dude, I'll get you a cup of coffee. But, you know, you keep on getting kicked out of here and, and you can't just come in here and scream. It's Pete's, you know, so I'll get you coffee. You wait out there and then we'll talk for a while. OK, so it, it was it kept on still being that. So anyway, that's where I went. That's what happened. I went to Berkeley in my mind and I realized that there were things that really didn't change, even though you keep on hearing about the skyrocketing real estate prices. There are ways that people talk to each other and envision a different kind of future, uh, you know, a more sustainable future that were constant. So I just kept on pulling things in. And it, I had all these different scenarios to exemplify this. And actually, truth be told, I didn't actually go to a Passover Seder. <laughs> it just rhymed with the word later. But I had gone to one here where there were just a ton of politics. And a lot of present illusions, you know. Sacrificing uh, your integrity for a rhyme. Terrible. (laughs) Well, but the integrity remained insofar as in the present, I had been to a very political Seder and was very impressed with all of the ways that the present was connected, you know, with the Old Testament. So, I mean, you're reflecting back on basically the 60s, which musically that might connote to me like incense and peppermint or something like that. Not 1800s waltz, (laughs) but that initial... Melody is, you know, completely just that classical dreamlike thing. Is it just historical as historical? <laughs> or what, what, what connected those two things for you? But you know, it's interesting. It's kind of historical, but historical meaning could be some time in history, like Rococo or Baroque or just, you know, kind of classical-ish. And that's kind of the vagueness. The 60s to me are a time when people were, and a lot of people will disagree with this, but I feel like a friend of mine was disinherited during that time because she told her parents that she was going to, you know, give all the money away to the revolution if they gave her money. So they basically tossed her out. And she said, it wasn't just the money. It was, I couldn't go home. I was excommunicated. I was humiliated. I was put into an institution by my mom for a little while. And so she ran away with this guy when she was 18 and got married and they had to be each other's parents. And so a lot of the sixties was about people being radically ejected from the world that had been built up in the 60s that believed in a certain kind of patriotism that included a certain kind of war, a certain kind of fear of communism, a certain faith in Christianity. You know, so there was this desire to formalize and to create these formal structures that they could repurpose to be their own new authorities. Like Peter Yarrow told me that they used to call him the rabbi. (laughs) And he was like 25. 
And, you know, and there's Joan, you know, Joan Baez, like holding up this mantle of authority of justice and a new way of looking at Christianity through liberation theology, like in her songs up there at Woodstock, all these people sort of saying these formal structures can belong to us, even though we're, we look (laughs) and sound like we do and we're very young. And Leonard Cohen was doing a lot of that. Like he brought in a lot of formal stuff. And so did Judy Collins with Jeremy Rifkin's production. There are lots of classical references in her music that he would bring in as a way to legitimize and even codify this new way of looking at peace and justice and diversity and different ways of of being in the world. Before we introduce the next song, can you say just a little bit about maybe what will cover both this song and Empty Plane we're going to talk about next from Emerald 2015, both very thickly arranged. But, you know, when I see you live, most of the time it's you by yourself with your acoustic or with a couple other people. Can you say a little about sort of how the me sitting by myself with a guitar in a room translates out to, is it you just get a nice take of you and then it goes to a producer and how much do you have your fingers in it after that point? There was an album called The Green World with these incredible musicians and I tried to control what I'd heard in my head. You know, I tried to control what was happening in the studio based on what I heard on my head, in my head when I was writing the songs. And I remember the drummer, who's a lovely friend, Steve Holly, but who I'd never met before. He said, all right, I think what you're asking will ruin the song, but I will do it. <laughs> and, and I don't think, I think it turned out pretty well. Thanks to, I mean, he, he wrapped his mind around it, but I was saying to people, no, this is what I heard. This is what I heard. And they would say, well, what about this? And I realized when they had free reign to kind of do their thing, kind of the way they're drawing their own vocabulary that they had accumulated over years and years and, you know, really versatile, but still kind of their own thing. Whenever that happened, it was better. So on the next album, Beauty of the Rain, I sat back. And if I didn't like what I heard, I let it sit for a few days and let it take on its own life. And I discover that it's very important. So really the most important thing to do, I think, is to have a great, transparent producer who brings in wonderful musicians and who is then open to everybody's feedback, including mine. So I will put my foot down, not put my foot down, I will will assert my opinion. But it's interesting to see how a studio can kind of live in its own world If you let people just follow their instincts and and so many interesting things come from not trying to micromanage. And that means if somebody had a bagel instead of cornflakes that morning, they might have a different take on the song, (laughs) which is so funny when critics are like, why did she choose this? It's like, I don't know, because so-and-so had a bagel or so-and-so had the flu and we brought in another drummer and we just dug that thing. So we said, okay, that'll be what the song sounds like. So just as basic a thing as I can see with that melody, thinking of this as a waltz, but I originally called it 6-8 just because the drumming is going tune to tune ta. It's not going boom, pop, pop, boom. Like there's no way to make a fast 3-4 on drums sound anything but extremely dorky. So you just have to just leave them out completely if you want to have a waltz like that or do it halftime like that. I think there is this moment when you kind of, where I talk about kind of what I'm feeling as I'm going into it and, and drawing on a certain era and drawing on a certain influences. And that can be really helpful. Like I had a song called, I won't be your Yoko Ono. And everybody was like, okay, basically this should sound like a Beatles song. I'm like, yeah, but it's, you know, just let's make sure we don't go with the, okay. <laughs> it's like, it's, and, and they were right, you know, and they kind of took in these kind of George Martin-y sound elements and they used that as their reference and it r- worked beautifully. So, you know, you have this kind of these, little fence posts in the pasture, but you want to make sure you have a really wide open pasture so that people feel open to their instincts. And that's the material that you're working with, not some, you know, manifesto of how it has to sound because you want to allow for all that instinct to kind of mix and match itself with the other musicians. All right, well, let's get that second song out there. This is again, Empty Plane from Emerald. Do you have a few words to say about it before they hear it? This was one of the most lushly arranged ones. And I thought it had a really nice sort of holding your breath uh, feel to the whole thing. But it's evidently about a dream. First of all, I actually wanted one person basically to be on this because I did want a both acoustic and an ambient feel to it. So I didn't want it to be super layered and lush. So it's one person who's Trevor Gordon Hall, who's really great at acoustic and 
ambient. And it was sort of all production-wise kind of his brainchild. We'll talk about the dream after. Okay. Yeah. So tell us the story. I mean, is this a, a fairly literal transliteration of a dream or is it expanding it into something to tell the, the whole theme that you want to express? It actually started when I was sitting on a plane that what didn't have a lot of people on it. And I was so relieved because I, had, I could put my guitar up in the thing and nobody was glaring at me in the overhead and, and I could spread out. And it just was a thing that I thought, wouldn't it be great if I was just on a plane just by myself? Like I came on, I had the whole plane to myself. And then I thought, now, that would be really creepy because that plane, 
would be a metaphor, that plane would have a destination with no return, you know? <laughs> and this voice came into my head that was going, then I walked on to, then I walked on to, walked on to an empty plane, you know, minor. So then I just kept on kind of thinking about that dreamlike, death-like, this idea that you come and everybody's just unusually kind, you know, because it's not a real airport and it's not a real airplane. They're here to help you with this journey that you're about to take. So I was collecting images that were dreamlike in airports. Like I had a whole thing that I was trying to write about the kiosks when you come at like five in the morning and the lights just coming into these huge windows of the the lobbies of airports. There are these kiosks that glow on the floor. You know, the shining floor has these little boxes of blue of the reflection of the kiosk and it matches the sky that's coming in. And it just seems very dreamlike and kind of modern and a little bit tragic and nothing of that image made it into the song. <laughs> so there's a lot that hits the cutting room floor. So I, I did, but I kept on thinking like, what would happen if somebody was very nice at the screening thing instead of like, you know, do you have anything over three ounces? You know, if there was this kind of welcome, we're so glad this is okay. You don't have to take off your shoes. <laughs> And then I imagine somebody at this one of these busy, busy, you know, Starbucks, because that's, I was going to just say cafe, but, you know, Starbucks was more accurate. Just being like, hi, look at you. You know, I'm going to, and you're starting to understand that this isn't any old airport. That's so funny. Look, I made some wings in the foam here just to give you a little metaphoric sense that this is a new kind of flying. So I, I just kept on kind of looking at those crossover images between a real airport and a different kind of traveling experience. And then I had a dream that I was going on a train and it was made clear to me as I got onto the train that this train was going to bring me to the next world. And I said, you know, it's funny. I always thought that I'd be cool about this, but I have kids and I really would have liked to have met them when they were growing up. I really would like to know how it all turned out and to have known them as adults. And that's not going to happen. And I'm still going to be cool about this. But that haunted, like, I can deal with this, but this is it feeling followed me through the rest of the writing of the song. So it was more than an intellectual exploration or, you know, it was more emotional. And then I was walking around this museum and I was trying to think about what I knew about people with after death experiences. And I just thought, I don't want to write about after death. <laughs> I don't want to. I think this is going to be a dream. And I'm going to wake up from the dream. And I'm going to, just like that green world into the closed worlds thing, I'm going to bring the wisdom of this dream into my traveling life, or the narrator will. And, you know, kind of like Lord of the Flies, like I woke up from this understanding of what it is to travel, what it is to put our bodies into space and encounter time and space. And now I'm coming back only to get on a plane and go do this again, be away from my family, etc. That gives it a sort of inevitability. Talk about things hitting the cutting room floor. I mean, the whole like, I wish I could see my kids when they're adults. Like that would be hard to maneuver into the song without making it sound too overwrought. But just this very minimalist, I leave for a living. It's what we all do. And then the guitar answers with this thick. It's what we all do. Poignant chord. And that's enough. And then it makes it sound like that's the thing that's setting up the emotional. It's kind of nice to be out on my own and not be, but. I don't really want that, but yet you're just going to wake up and actually do it anyway, because that's just, it's what we all do. Right. So now I'm going to leave for a living yet again. So it's, it's kind of back into the fire, but hopefully with a better sense. The pandemic, things got really cheap around here, you know? And I thought if I put patches on patches and drink dandelion tea, I could tour much, much less. Like I could really change my life quite radically. And from a climate perspective, maybe I should, you know, I'll just stare at the plants as they grow and, and my kids as they grow. And, and then I thought, no, you know, this is what I do. And I would like to travel differently. I mean, I've always been sort of green. I'm pretty green. <laughs> I try to be. But, you know, maybe I'll just keep on doing this, but really recommit to doing more fundraisers and to letting people table and giving more of my money away. And, but I am going to go back to this exact life of touring with stuff and being a traveling musician and making peace with my family about that. That was kind of the, in the dream, the, the dream in the song as well. Like I'm going to do this, but maybe with more of a sense that just because I go traveling all over the world doesn't mean 
that it adds up to something meaningful. I still have to step away from that and make meaning from it. To say I went to 50 cities is not inherently meaningful, but you can make a lot of meaning from those worldly experiences. Let's stop for a minute for our sponsor break. Have you yet checked out Masterclass? I want you to think right now about how many streaming channels you pay for, or worse, how much you put into cable TV versus the amount of actual benefit you get out of it. Now hold that up against $15 a month, which is what a Masterclass subscription runs for, which is up close contact with the thoughts of some of the world's best minds, people you have probably heard of, whose work you admire, right? Neil deGrasse Tyson, James Cameron, Jane Goodall, Chandra Rhimes, Neil Gaiman, Bob Woodward, Steve Martin, many, many more. There are over a hundred classes, beautiful looking, professionally shot. You can access them through audio, through video, through whatever device you own. You can really sink into a class, watch the whole thing, use the supplementary materials, engage in discussion with other masterclass students, or you can just poke around, treat it like a very high class podcast service. I do a combination of these things. I was very interested, for instance, in the Danny Elfman on movie soundtracks course, Listen to every little minute of that, but then turn to, for instance, a new one that just came out, NAS, teaches hip-hop storytelling. I think you should stop right now. Just go watch the little sample. In one minute, he gives you a tip about you're writing a rap. There's probably at least one line in there that just is awesome. The thing that makes the rest of it worthwhile. He's saying, take that one line, pull it out, throw the rest away for the moment, build something just around that one line. That is a damn good songwriting technique from a source that I probably would not have looked up on my own. If you're a fan of this podcast, you probably know that I have eclectic tastes. And even though I might write a certain way myself, I think if you go and ask Alicia Keys, Timbaland, Dead Mouse, these figures that maybe don't do the same kind of music that I do, but they are fascinating. Great speakers have a lot of interesting advice. And of course, when you're a musician, you're not just making music, you're marketing yourselves, you're a writer, you're a storyteller, and there are so many of these figures that are relevant to the extended practice of being creative, of being a business person, of being a human being. So I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. As a Nakedly Examined Music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. So looking back to the arrangement again, can you say a little about the, you said it was Trevor Gordon Hall's construction, but certainly there was some sort of like, how long do I want this thing to sort of fester at the beginning before you actually come in with the riff? Can you say something about the sort of the communication and what kind of framework you were laying down for him? Trevor's so great. He has a song called The Blue Room on one of his albums that he gave me at a festival that his manager at the time, Rob Nagy, gave me. And I listened to that thing. Our town was beset by Roger Ailes. He lived here and his wife ran a paper here and it was people got humiliated and the town was ripped apart. And I was, of course, totally caught up in that. And I would listen to specifically that song, The Blue Room, over and over again and that whole album by Trevor. And I just felt like he just seemed to have this way of a sense of the tragic comic, you know, and these quiet moments that he was captured. And I just trusted him. So I called him and I said, I want you to be the whole enchilada of this song. And then we talked theoretically, you know, I said, I want there to be this sort of ambient dreamscape into which we drop the song before. And we tried this and we tried that. And, you know, he got to all of these things pretty quickly. And we got to that, you know, yes, this will be about 15 seconds pretty easily. So can you contrast that with Berkeley or the you know, things from the new album were you kind of working on this with a rhythm section or, or was it just likewise mostly the producer that even, I guess I'm trying to figure out often it's just like we've worked out sort of a band arrangement and then we bring the strings in. But if the producer is there from the beginning and is sort of directing the, the bass and drums and everything, then it can be a little more coherent as if there were one person. Emerald was an album that I co-produced with all of the producers I worked with. I, I recorded in a seven, eight, maybe nine studios I went to LA and I did something with Brad Wood, who's so wonderful. The, the rock things I really wanted to do with him. And Trevor lives down in Pennsylvania. So I did it in Rob Hyman's wonderful studio in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. So Rob and I were there with Trevor and it was more like a discussion than a production. And that did feel a little bit different. But again, you know, I always choose producers who 
are very conversational <laughs> about the process. So yeah, we just sat there and said, this sounds like this, but it was nice. I guess what I can add to this in terms of how production is works for me is that I can bring in a lot of metaphors just like I do in my songs and say, you know, this sounds like more Azure than turquoise, if you know what I mean. And, and musicians are so lovely and the producers are like, okay, I think you mean this, you know, <laughs> and they'll play something for me and they'll take me where I am just like improvisational theater and, and say, okay, uh, let me work with what you just gave me as opposed to if you can't give me like major minor seventh, you know, a sus two, blah, blah. I can't do this. So I think I told them the dream about my kids. I told them about how I decided it wasn't necessarily about death. You know, it could be about a lot of kind of transformative experiences. And they were like nodding along like, okay, this will inform us musically. Let me play one little bit from Empty Plane. We introduce a new chord. There's like a gong sound or something. And it seems like it's maybe going to take off into a bridge that's going to go somewhere, but it actually pretty quickly pulls back to where it's been for the rest of the song. Here it is. Does my life have a destiny? Just a destination. I thought I'd step away from my traveling. Have a little time to connect the dots. See my life like a spiral. We introduced a new happy chord. You know, it has its own, even though the whole song is floating, it has its own gravity sort of to the same couple of pretty simplistic, you know, we're going to do these just back and forth between two chords to kind of have this suspense that persists throughout, that you can't actually provide relief anywhere in this song. (laughs) (laughs) No. So basically we, you know, it goes to a, like an A seventh, you know, so it goes from a minor, might be an A minor to an A seventh. So like that kind of major minor juxtaposition has a definite lift feel and a, and a kind of a, you know, tilt your head, contemplative, twisty feel. Look at me. Look, look that's, this is how I talk about music. So the way that I describe music theory is it's like everything, every chord lives in its own house with its housemates. You know, it's, it's minor forms, you know, like C lives in a house with a G and an F. And, you know, you kind of know who lives in your house. And every once in a while, you want something that feels a little more extended or just a destination, you know, that has that little yearning in it. And so that's when you go to your neighbor's house (laughs) and you borrow a chord that's not from your house, not in your key, you know, as a way to give that sense of exploration in the narration. So, yes, it goes there. But the song is like a thought process. So the You know, it'd be like a person on a plane talking to a stranger and saying, sometimes I wonder if my life has any meaning at all. But anyway, so I'm really excited to be going back to New York. You know, it's like you you know that you can't just go in, can't rhapsodize. You have to kind of keep on coming back to how we speak to our acquaintances, not getting all rhapsodizing and going out into the cosmos. Can you say a little about that choice of pretty soon after that, you have the and I believed in a legacy that we've had fairly long lines through here, you know, except for the, obviously the empty plane part, but that's almost like a bridge in that it is, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, introducing yeah. <laughs> something different rhythmically in the, the vocals. More like a jet bridge. It just kind of juts right out there. Again, the song's like a thought process. And I think the narrator is thinking in real time. So, you know, every song's different. Some have a much more you know, like Berkeley is much more planned. Like here's my crushed velvet and here's my paint and I'm putting <laughs> doing this big and here's my Elvis, you know. But this one is a, it's a person thinking in real time as it's happening and it's occurring to this person that this is not any other plane ride. And they, so they're talking to the screener about these existential things. And then there's this kind of contemplative and I believed and, and that's this kind of like real time, like what did I, what did I think was going to happen? What did I think was going to happen besides I was just going to die one day and everything was going to make sense of itself? And so it's like, so what would it feel like if I had thought it through some legacy? Like, so that's kind of what the person is like. And I believed in a legacy. I guess that's what I was thinking was going to be different than just not waking up one morning. And I think the songs are great that way. You know, some songs are like that. They're just like one continuous thought as the narration. And yet the tone of the thing has to remain specific and musical enough that you can't actually do what you just did with your voice right there and sound confused like that, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So you let the rest do it for you. I mean, but you let it, but so you let the rest in the music, the space between it 
to, you know, stand in that place. And, and hopefully it does, but you're right. I mean, you have to see how music will function for you that way. So the few, I mentioned a sort of, I thought it was a gong sound maybe in there, this after Hello Angel, there's kind of this weird. And said, Hello Angel. It was all empty. Rolling noise. Are these just all guitars through a bunch of effects? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's so. all Trevor and okay. me playing the, 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 the you know, the, the arpeggios. He's me. Well, and is the arpeggio sort of open enough, like what I called the poignant chord, like was that actually part of what you played or it's just that what you're playing is simple enough that he, he had the room to like add extensions on the chords and introduce that kind of thing? That's the genius of Trevor Gordon Hall. You know, it's what I heard in my mind and I heard in my heart, but he knew where to put in the sevenths and the major sevenths and all that stuff. So, and the minor sevenths. So, that was all him. The only thing is I, I was cooking dinner one night and I had this little piece of melody that went dun dum dun 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 dum dun 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 as a little counterpoint. Again, not unlike Berkeley, like almost like a little classical counterpoint, a somewhat a little bit twee, you know, like a kind of precious way to locate the song and give it this sort of quasi classical feel. And I heard that while I was cooking and I recorded it and and said I would like this to be the musical motif and of course he picked it up and and put all the cool chords underneath it okay so so like I was wondering with Berkeley that initial piano thing that descending well that sounds like something you would have hummed but it's also reflective enough of what you sing that I could also see like pretty much any piano player who's really tasteful that you put out like suggesting something like that. So it's sort of, it doesn't even matter whose idea it was. It- well, luckily I do have a very tasteful piano, a keyboard player, Bryn Roberts, who I've been playing on the road with for over 10 years now. So he came up with that theme. We actually wrote a song called New York is a Harbor that where he came up with a very, very set musical motif that is very defining of the song. So this is why we need to share royalties more with musicians. <laughs> You know, radio royalties, because they, yeah, you bring in people like that who have a sense of those kind of hooky motifs. The other thing, when Berkeley, I kept on saying, I hear, so we had to go through a lot of iterations of that to sort of get to that weird Baroque stage thing that I was hearing in my head. And that I did, you know, really work on with them. But no, Trevor came up with all of the sonic things like we wanted that gong that you hear it's to us was kind of almost like turbulence, you know, just kind of a low lying turbulence, emotional plane airport with a lot of other planes taking off around it stuff. So he just kept on being able to pull these cool allusions to environments from his instrument. All right, we got to get the third song out there. Are you out there from the end of summer 1997? We are rolling back the clock. More arranged. I know this is, you know, one of the favorites that was actually included intact. This arrangement into the 2010 Many Great Companions album, where which was mostly reworked acoustic versions of things. But this one, we'll just preserve this the way it is. So you must like this one in terms of the arrangement. And Spotify kept suggesting it to me after I would finish another album. So I guess it is one of your most listened to tracks. Can you say a few words about it before we hear it? It took me a long time to write it. Right in the middle, a friend of mine said, you shouldn't write this song. There's no teenager who actually talks this way. And there's this, <laughs> I finally finished it because it doesn't matter that no, that a teenager wouldn't be so prescient that she'd understand how to, how to reflect on her life this way. This is like teenager with a capital T in a certain kind of narration. And that's what this is. I could see a teen writing, perhaps I am a miscreation in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's teenagerish. Yeah. That's pretty adolescent. Grungy bands, you never 
Yeah, so this is a very fun one, and it has this thick Peter Gabriel-ish <laughs> arrangement between the heavy, prominent drums, but I'm not sure if there are any actual cymbals. There's percussion noises in the treble range, plus this breathing thing. Yeah, can you say about sort of how that initial sound patch came together? I wouldn't be surprised if the the Peter Gabriel gated drums stuff, you know, was an influence on Steve Miller, who who did this. Not Steve Miller. Yes, Stephen Miller of Wyndham Hill. Stephen Miller, exactly, who was lovely to work with. And I think it was Steve Gabori on keyboards, who, again, can be very narrative in his playing, is really open to that. And I'm not sure if Jeff Golub played on this or Bill Dylan, but either way, very... <laughs> Stephen knows people. So, and he's actually friends with them, which is lovely. Like, I saw a lot of great male friendships in all of these studios. And so there would be a very loose and respectful and trusting communication. But I'm guessing that Steve was the mastermind in terms of pulling together all of the sounds to create sort of this unified. Yes, I think Peter Gabriel esque would probably pins it down somewhat. Well, in particular, toward the end in the bridge, what's the future? Who will choose it? There's this synth that kind of peeks in. This blah, blah, blah. like okay, that's the thing that I really like off the security album, like that Larry Fast synth thing. But yeah, so was this a similar, you know, back at this point, was this when you were trying to exert more control on the arrangements or was he just a big enough presence that like you were sort of doing what we've already discussed with these more recent songs? This was my second album with Steven. So I was very happy to get in there with him on this stuff. And we were really, we really became close through all of this. So, so I'm sure that I asserted that, but I think with this song, it was more like, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. I, what I learned with Steve on the first album I did, when we did As Cool As I Am, was that there were drum loops, there were these sounds, he wanted this bass harmonica player in there. And there was this part of me that said, but I'm a folk musician, and folk musicians should have mandolins and banjos, and they can't have drum loops, and they can't have electronica in their stuff. And then I just thought, you know, the song wants these drum loops. The song doesn't want mandolins. So there's a moment when you walk into the studio where you say, what would the song like? And you might have a different vision as your producer, but you're both kind of trying to let the song have it say. And so he must have, we never said Peter Gabriel, we never said one thing or the other, but clearly he must have been pulling off of this vast soundscape that he had access to, to say, you know, we want this feeling of alienation. We want this you know, feeling of an, an accelerated emotional plea at the end with, you know, that where we modulate. So we will bring in that kind of, you know, thing to step it up. I think with that one, mostly it was just trust and just sitting on a couch going, wow, that's cool. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> Letting Steve run it. And so do you feel like we already played a little bit of As Cool As I Am from that previous album? Was that kind of the big single and that, you know, it has that very prominent bass harmonica, which, you know, outside of Beach Boy Land, I don't know if I hear on a lot of things. I'm unclear sort of how the business of your, the progression of your career worked. Like, I know there's a nice video for this. Was that the breakout hit sort of (laughs) thanks to this new, like, it definitely seems folky, but it yet has all this other stuff, you know, maybe less so than Are You Out There, which where the drums have sort of, the acoustic guitar has gotten pushed to to the bottom of the heap by this time. I'm really lucky. Like, I'm the luckiest person. I had the luckiest career. I was just starting out when the internet was starting out and people were saying, let's cut out the middleman and just let people listen to this stuff and and feel the power of that. So I had that. I had great management. I had great booking agents who said, you know, we've never written a contract for a tip jar before, but here we go, Dar. You know, (laughs) it just took me right 
from the start. And there was a kind of a, a cracking open of the way people were listening to music because of Ani DeFranco. You know, Ani wasn't following any rules. She let the songs have their say. She dipped into all these different genres. And I was on a label that wasn't a folk label. It was a razor and tie where I stayed for 20 years. So everybody was open. You know, the only person who had to get with the program of being open to what was happening was me. And I did have this first album that I wrote off in the woods in, in um, called The Honesty Room, off in the woods of Amherst, Massachusetts. And then we, you know, suddenly things got very fancy and formal with record contracts and stuff and Stephen and Stephen Miller. And Stephen said, like, let's try this, let's try this. And there was a part of me that said, but I'm supposed to be loyal to, you know, my tip jar gigs <laughs> and, that, and this very acoustic, folky world that expects a certain kind of acoustic wooden feel to all of its instruments. And Steve was like, what? Why? Why? You know, I worked at Wyndham Hill and I'm not feeling, you know, that we have to have these rules. I guess this is to say my second album paralleled sort of this big step from like sitting with a bunch of boys in their early 20s doing the song When I Was a Boy or The Great Unknown and going, well, that sounds pretty. Might be like, is it in tune? Is it okay? Is the pitch okay? Do you like the song? They're like, yeah, it's pretty. You know, to suddenly Steve Miller coming from Wyndham Hill and being like, let's do this. Are you ready? When I Was a Boy broke open my career. So that because it was a gender song, it wasn't a feminist song. It was more of a gender song. And I don't think people realized how much we really wanted to have a gender conversation beyond the equality conversation. So turning back to the uh, Are You Out There, the message of that. So what is the connection between the message of this? Other than there's, you know, obvious things in the vocal effects that like, you know, I'm doing the radio voice now, you know, that you have certain oh. things suggested <laughs> by the producer clearly to kind of. But I would think that the kind of music that you are introduced to in this, is that reflected at all in the style of this song? Or is this... Like, just the fact that this is kind of a happy, frantic song, like, how does that connect with, you know, being alone in a room as a teen? What, is there a connection there? Or is, is the style more coming out of, this is the, the mode in which I am reminiscing, not the mode of the time that I'm reminiscing about? Oh, you're sense. good. I think it's both. <laughs> I wrote the song, and it had a certain rhythm, and it had a certain feel, and it had those things. And but, you know, to go to a chorus where you go down instead of up, like, and are you out there? Can you hear this, Jimmy Olsen? So choruses are supposed to be up, but this one was, had that kind of angsty drive. So it went straight into the chorus as opposed to having that kind of lift. And that's very much kind of an edgy New Yorky, you know, rock kind of thing. So you're right. I think that it was of the genres that were out there in, in New York radio, and it was an homage to those genres. You know, there I was in the suburbs and there was this sound coming in from New York City that wasn't necessarily just the music. You know, it was New York City in the 70s and 80s, you know, like uh, shattered by the Rolling Stones, you know, <laughs> the maggot, <laughs> the, 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 the big apple full of maggots. And it was struggling and you would go into on the train and you'd feel all that edge, you know, that really great edge. But also like somebody came up to me and said, you look like you just got off a train from the suburbs. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> and I was 17. <laughs> so it was different. And so when you were in the suburbs and you heard the sound of the city coming into you, you know, through the gritty talk radio conspiracy theory left, left wing thing, it, it, it had a gritty sound to it just as much as WNEW or any of those famous stations had like a velvet underground kind of New York. So yeah, I think you're right. I think that we were, you know, giving a nod to all of that. Yeah, I feel like I could get more into the arrangement here, but it seems like it would be a little redundant of what we've already done. So let's uh, introduce the last song. We want to get back to the present. So I'll meet you here, this new album, Today and Every Day, the first single off that. Do you want to say a few words about that before we let folks go? This one started with a, a line from a dream. It was da 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 da, and it had kind of a goofy road song, kind of like one of the Beatles B side kind of feels to it. And it started as a relationship song, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And then I said today and every day, and then I thought, what is my today and every day? What do I do today and every day? And I think, and I thought, I wake up and I think about something that's going to help the planet have sustainable life for humans. <laughs> and so I went with it. You know, it's very childlike. It's not very deep, but it's super from the heart. And if that's the song that wants to be written, that's the song I write. <laughs> 
And I will refer folks to the video for this, which builds on what you were just saying with a little puppet version of you or something. It's, <laughs> it's very cute. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Dar. Thank you. All right. Here it is today and every day. Hey there, polar bear. It's quite a mess we found. Life is one heavy trip. Our paws are sinking in the ground. I see you out lumbering at the break of dawn. How can we survive and save the day before the day is gone? Well, I know I'm gonna find a way. I know I'm gonna like the way. Cause if I'm ever gonna make it, then I gotta say, I can't save the world today and every day. Thank you so much to Dar. I cannot overstate how much I enjoyed going through her catalog. I had only listened to a little bit via an ex-girlfriend from early in Dar's career before this, but she is just a primo, primo singer-songwriter. The kind of lyrics that I enjoy and aspire to. Take a look at darwilliams.com. And the amazing guests keep on coming. Next time I'm talking to Steve Bartek, who is the guitarist for Oingo Boingo and continues to support Oingo Boingo frontman Danny Elfman in his career as one of the most successful movie soundtrack writers ever. Steve does orchestrations for Danny and has done soundtracks all on his own, as well as band work that we'll review. I was also extremely pleased to have just interviewed John McCutcheon, who is a very famous folk songwriter, interpreter of traditional music, scholar of traditional music, plays many folk instruments like Dar, a songwriting instructor and storyteller, children's performer, has a really unique, interesting take on the music business as well as the creative process. Make sure you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can find all the options for doing that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you have the least bit of love for this product, want me to do more of these, please show your support. There's two ways you can do that. You can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Signing up for the feed there will give you ad-free versions. There are posts up there that have my notes for each of these episodes, which have all the lyrics and comments about the arrangement, many of which I didn't even make. So something to have in front of you when you're going back over the songs to hear them sort of through my ears. You can also get the ad-free versions by signing up 
for the paid feed directly through Apple Podcasts if you're a user of that application. And that subscription would be to the Mark Lintertainment Podcast Network, meaning that you're also subscribing to ad-free versions with quite a lot of bonus content of two of my other podcasts, Philosophy versus Improv and Pretty Much Pop. So a real bargain for that. And don't just assume that other people are supporting me because not really enough of them to warrant my doing three podcasts in addition to The Partially Examined Life. I really need supporters like you to actually make themselves known through a small monetary contribution if you want to keep hearing great interviews like this one. But putting that aside, thank you so much for your attention, for listening. I hope you're thoroughly enjoying these artists that I'm maybe introducing you to, reacquainting you with, hooking you up to their current work, helping you see the insides of their skulls. I'm so blessed that I get to do this, that these people will deign to talk to me. And eventually I will put this insight back into writing more songs. Running four podcasts doesn't leave tremendous amounts of time for doing that, but I do play lots of drums every day to relieve stress, to try to get finally as good as like a talented high school drummer, maybe, eventually. Perhaps not the best use of my musical time, but heck, you do what you can do. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off.